0: We are a citizen-organized, a citizen-run, a citizen-funded initiative. We don't have a single large donor. We're doing this all on our own, almost exclusively by volunteers. We want to start a national dialogue. COVID-19 pandemic has been a unprecedented event as far as uh, Canada and the countries in the world are concerned. The fact that in Canada, people are still afraid. It has not
1: been disclosed uh, to the general public the contents of the uh, material. So in that moment, she framed every unvaccinated person, including her guest on the show, as a danger to public
2: safety. What's interesting also is that nobody can name a single real-world vaccine success story where COVID rates went down at a nursing home or a funeral home after
1: the vax roll-up.
2: You're in in a cancer clinic clinic. and you feel abused by everybody because they, they didn't want to know you. They
0: wanted to know your mask. They wanted to make personal contact with
3: your mask and that was the horror of it. How did we get to this point?
1: A nation that is afraid to let its people judge the truth and
0: falsehood, in an open market, is a nation that is afraid of its people. That's still where we are in this nation, Canada, because no government, no authority wants to inquire into its handling or mishandling of the last three years' response to COVID-19. So, welcome everyone who's watching. My name is Sean Buckley. I'm a volunteer lawyer that assists at the National Citizens Inquiry. I'm very pleased to be with three esteemed police officers tonight: Vincent Gerseys, Rick Abbott, and Danny Bulford. I'm going to ask them in a moment to just give a a brief outline of their experience as police officers. Um, Very quickly, though, I'll just share a little bit about the NCI for those of you who are watching that aren't familiar with the NCI, the National Citizens Inquiry is just a group of citizens that have gotten together and, and encouraged Canadians to participate. I think volunteer-wise, we haven't counted, but likely 800 to 1,000 Canadians have volunteered in one way or another to basically march for independent commissioners across Canada to hold independent hearings. And all of these people with me tonight testified as witnesses of the National Citizens' Inquiry, and I'd encourage everyone to view their testimony. you will just be fascinated, and we're gonna have a fascinating conversation today. Um, I just you know, wanted to share, it's just been an honor um, to be involved at the National Citizens' Inquiry. What we experienced through the hearings was basically a sense of community forming. We came to understand that we're not alone, that we can be strong, We're going to be facing some challenges going forward and i know that i've personally found it extremely helpful to understand that there is a community standing with me and i think we're all starting to feel that we need to become more involved in the state of our country in our institutions than we ever have before and we're just pleased to be helping you understand information that you wouldn't otherwise have and empowering you and i'm very excited about some of the things that are upcoming at the national citizens inquiry so tomorrow we're launching podcasts so witnesses like the witnesses that are with me tonight um not everyone's ready but we're just the audio of their testimony is going to be posted as podcasts you can go to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca forward slash podcasts starting tomorrow and start listening to podcasts We're also anticipating that within the next two weeks, a part of the commissioner's report is going to be released to the public. And I can tell you, I'm very personally excited about that. And that this is Canada campaign is is moving along and please go to our site and participate in that. It's a way to get other people that do not understand that there's a different narrative and that, there's just some compelling testimony to watch. It's a safe way for people who are resistant to a different narrative to be introduced to it. And then finally, I wanted us to recognize that we lost one of our witnesses within the last week. Sheila Lewis has passed away. We posted, um, the plan is, is for every single witness that testified to have a single web page with the high definition of their, their video testimony a transcript of their testimony, and a link to any exhibits that they've had. We've done that for Sheila already, so you can go to the National Citizens' Inquiry website and watch her video of her evidence. I watched it last night, and um, although I'd I'd led her as a witness and I knew what I was gonna be watching, I and those uh, who watched with me were all in tears. It was just so compelling. So I, I would invite you to do all of that um, so let's get on with tonight. So, <clears throat> Rick, I, I'll ask you to start and just kind of introduce, you know, who you are as a police officer, what your experience was, and um, <clears throat> and then we'll move to Danny Bolford and, and Vincent Gerseys. And then after that, um, we'll march into kind of the discussion of what it was like during the pandemic to be a police officer and and maybe you know have each of you share your journey and we'll have a dialogue about that
4: you bet first i want to thank you for having us again sean you're doing yeoman's work and we appreciate it and i'm also glad this the first time that i can sit down with vincent the first time we've met virtually here uh, i was a 25 year police officer with the edmonton police service uh, i last worked in one of the divisions as a watch commander. So I was promoted through to staff sergeant and my career revolved mostly around uh, frontline policing. So I was a constable on the street as a beat officer where I learned the drug trade. I uh, was a patrol officer or general duty police officer that responded to all the 911 complaints that you're probably familiar with. And then I quickly, as a junior officer, was uh, successful into getting into one of our, our tactical teams or the SWAT teams as a sniper. I spent a combined time there almost over 10 years as, as a promoted rank. So I, I did go back to tactical section again as a, a training sergeant and as a sniper. And then ultimately was promoted again out of tactical section as a staff sergeant back to the street. So... The rest of my career, the only time I really went inside, we call it inside uh, when you're not on the street. And it's not a nice term, actually, to call me an inside cop. But the time I did spend inside was spent teaching gunfighting and use of force issues surrounded around firearms and use of force. So that's uh, my career in a nutshell. It was a fun one. I, uh, I'm, I'm proud of it. It was uh, I'm one of the very few that had a privileged career like that. And, uh, the rest of the story, I'm sure some of your listeners already know, but I won't bore you with that. We'll go on to the other guys.
2: So Danny, we'll, we'll switch over to you. Well, I joined the RCMP in August of 2006 is when I went to Regina Depot Training Academy. As soon as I graduated, I was posted to Whitehorse Yukon. I was posted there for a. About four years and then took a second posting in the Yukon in Mayo Detachment. That was all uniform general duty northern policing. From there I transferred to Ottawa in uh, July of 2013 where I spent eight years uh, as a full-time sniper observer on the National Division Emergency Response Team. And that then, so that was a combined 15-year service, and I resigned in December of 2021 because I became publicly outspoken against the federal government's COVID-19 vaccination mandate <clears throat> because, well, despite any internal efforts or efforts to get our, our union to represent us and to stand up for anyone who didn't want to take a COVID vaccine to maintain their paycheck, no one wanted to listen no one wanted to help so i spoke out on behalf of a group of mounties and ultimately made the decision to resign thank you and and vincent do you want to share your place history
1: sure thank you so much uh, sean for having me here i'm a former member a veteran of the ontario provincial police i started my career in 1982 in ontario the same year that the canadian Charter of Rights was initiated, uh, and that was a a turning point uh, in this country for rights that we had on a very large scale. Starting my career, I began uh, in Toronto, working out of the Toronto detachment of the OPP, working along the 401 highway, which is the busiest highway in North America. Um, Certainly, investigations and enforcement, I eventually worked my way through to Uh, a few specialty teams. I was a member of the emergency response team for a number of years. Following that, uh, I took an interest in forensic investigation and worked my way up to a forensic reconstructionist position with the OPP investigating hundreds of death investigations before I finally uh, left that service uh, in about 2015. And uh, I, I was a training officer. I had trained three new recruits. It's, it's a pleasure to know that you're training more than your replacement, but uh, good individuals in the service. And there was also an instructor um, in forensic reconstruction. And I had taught to all the major police services in Ontario, in the greater Toronto region.
0: Thank you, Vincent. And just so you know, you're freezing a little bit. So I don't know if if you need to get some other devices turned off in your house or something for bandwidth. So <clears throat> just so you know, you're freezing up a little bit. Do you guys wanna, so the the official topic today, although we we always deviate as the conversation goes on, but the official topic is what was it like during the pandemic in the police service? And, I, and maybe, uh, and, and we can just all dialogue in that, except for, that for myself, but Rick, I know when I led you as a witness that you had some really interesting things to say, even you know, concerning what a room was called and and things like that. I'm wondering if you can share with us um, your thoughts on what it was like during the pandemic to be in the police service, because I'm and, and maybe contrast with, with what was different.
4: How about I start with that room? I, I won't leave your listeners hanging on it. Uh, when I worked in one of the divisions here in Edmonton, there was uh, a rule where our police officers were allowed to come to work if they chose not to take the COVID drugs, if they did a PCR test every three or four days, I forget the timeline. So if they came to work with a positive, sorry, with a negative test, they were allowed to work. Now, just imagine there was about 60 people in the division that I worked with per shift. And this is my guess that there was about A handful of those members had not taken the COVID drugs, so they were having to do the PCR test. And that only really came to my attention because that's supposed to be protected information, right? That's their personal health information that no one was supposed to be privy to. But there was a little extra rule that the Edmonton Police Service had enacted for their members where those who chose not to take the COVID drugs were not allowed into the lunchroom. So even though they'd go to calls together, uh, you can imagine responding on the street to every imaginable uh, emergency that police go to, including robberies, family fights, troubles with persons, stabbings. Sean, you and I would be sitting in the same car together, sharing the same air, sharing the same steering wheel, computer, wrestling the same bad guys. But when we came back to the division, we weren't allowed to eat together. This was a pivotal moment for me as a commander where I wasn't going to do that to my employees. It, it was uh, I was disgusted by the rule they were it was clearly not about health. It was completely nonsensical like most of the rules that we put up with during the pandemic. And it came to my attention that the lunchroom that was being used by there was an ad hoc lunchroom the, the room where the unvaccinated would go. Was colloquia- colloquially called the shame room. That's the room you're referring to. So, uh, if you didn't take the COVID drugs, shame on you, go eat over there while your squad mates can go eat in the lunchroom like clean human beings. So, I guess to work, the, to get back to your topic though, to work amongst that, uh, on one hand, I'm still fascinated that my colleagues would put up with that uh that was probably one of the primary reasons why i was i was forced out of the edmonton police service i say tongue-in-cheek that i was fired but the truth is they forced me into retirement and that was one of the issues that i brought up that i i had written a letter to the then justice minister here in alberta complaining that there was segregation going on in our police service and the executive officer team of the edmonton police service clearly didn't like that but When you ask what it was like to be working during COVID, it's issues like that that still fascinate me to this day. With the people that I work with, and uh, I don't know if I'll ever understand it, why would police officers who swore an oath to treat everybody equal with dignity and respect treat their fellow squad mates like that and put up with that kind of totalitarian, tyrannical... Aberrant policy. And, uh, so that was tough. And I, again, like I said, I, I certainly brought attention to myself by saying no to it, but, and, and Sean, I listened to you speak the other day at an, an event in Edmonton with the, uh, posties. And I, I need a, a little bit of Sean Buckley every once in a while to stay positive. I, I do like your message. And, uh, It reminded me again that we have to be here for those people when they finally come around to say, holy cow, I can't believe that I put up with that either. And uh, I'm going to chide you a little bit. You stole my rule of thirds. I've always thought that everything in the tactical teams anyway, uh, when we talked about guns, tactics, uh, we used to use a rule of thirds. We called it where a third loved it, a third hated it, and a third don't care. And you use that rule of thirds with where people are at with COVID today. Mm -hmm. There there seems to be these three camps, where a third fully see what happened. There's still the middle with uh, the heads in the sand. They don't want to hear about it. And then there's the third that still think that the common cold is going to kill you or your grandma next week. So that was tough working with those thirds in the pandemic with people that you didn't think would hold those values, you'd you'd think that they would have treated everybody equal. They didn't. So uh, to stay on topic, police were no different than everybody else. They fell into those rule of thirds in my uh, subjective opinion.
0: Danny or Vincent, either of you guys want to jump in? Now, Vincent, I appreciate you were retired already. But you have a lot of contact with police officers and I'm curious if you know you know what was shared with you and kind of what the feelings were because my under my understanding is is, is you know well I, you've just you've been intimately involved with police officers even though you are retired
1: yeah that's right I've had a lot of conversation um, e- either by reaching out to officers that I'm coming into contact with or I'm having a number quite a few police officers across Canada, in the last three years, I've probably spoken to a, a thousand or more officers that have reached out to me to have these kinds of discussion. And I'm hearing from, uh, from what Rick had just said, I'm hearing those exact numbers from everyone I talk to in every detachment or station, they're saying the exact same thing.
0: Right, but are they sharing with you kind of the challenges that they faced during COVID?
1: Yeah, very, very much so uh i won't get into all the stories but similar to what rick was dealing with the segregation issue there's no question that it was there that issue of the three different thirds the people are divided into three different camps the same kind of conversation the same type of segregation the same type of stories that um and, and hearing it from emergency services elsewhere with paramedics and fire same problem same type of thing exactly the
0: same. I, i'm curious and this is a question for all of you guys Is you know, we'd heard from some medical professionals that people that were not vaccinated were treated differently in the medical system. Are, are any of you aware of people who are not vaccinated being treated differently by the police?
5: Yeah, I am.
2: I, uh, I wasn't treated that differently until it was time to be sent home from work but I, I know a number of officers that I've spoken to from a, from different police services who were definitely um, made to feel very uncomfortable and supervisors would say demeaning things in front of the entire crowd or in, t- in front of the entire office. And it was obviously directed at one or two individuals about their vaccination status. I know one member who, who was formerly in uh, the RCMP, left protective policing because he was no longer allowed to drive the limo. And when he asked why and he wanted it in writing, no one would give him an answer. And then eventually it was yelled out from one of the NCO's uh, uh, cubicles in the office that it was because he was unvaccinated, even though he hadn't really shared that private information with anyone or had not officially attested. Um, I know... Another gentleman who worked for another police service, but was integrated with an RCMP unit. He got kicked out of that unit because he refused to attest and he refused to enforce the attestation or the mandates on the people under his command. And when uh, he confronted the RCMP supervisor about why he wasn't going to do that, even the RCMP supervisor admitted Yeah, I know. It's a huge human rights violation. I don't know how they're getting away with it. And uh, so he had a response for her about how, um, well, it's because people like you are going along with it and pushing it on people. And now they're making lists. And who knows how that list could be repurposed in the future. And so he was pushed out of his uh, integrated unit and had to go back to his police service of origin. So that, that's just a couple examples. Hey, Sean, if I can jump in, uh,
4: this brings up an interesting point. I actually understood your question. Uh, did we
0: or did I see any police officers treating civilians differently based exactly, on exactly Exactly. So that that was the question, because we had medical professionals tell us that people that were not vaccinated. Well, and we had people testify they were treated differently by the medical system. I'm just curious because. Remember, a lot of people were truly afraid, and that would include police officers, and how would that translate to how people in custody, so civilians in custody or being dealt with by the police, were treated?
4: Okay, th- this dovetails great into what Nanny said then, and I've never thought of this, but there's a real big disconnect here, because my experience with watching our constables go into these calls on the street is that they didn't give two hoots whether or not you took those drugs. So... We'd go to big disturbances, meaning fights, and uh, I, I picture right now going down the hallway of this one apartment building. There's 25 people running around in there, smoking, drinking, no masks, and uh, our police officers treated them all equally, w- without reservation. You, you got arrested with, if you had it coming, and you got told to pound sand if you got if you had that coming. Now, here's what's interesting with what Danny just said, though. We'd go back to the division and the cops who didn't take the COVID drugs would get ridiculed with underhanded comments exactly the way Danny just described it in the Edmonton Police Service, like horrible things that you'd never say. You wouldn't say that to the people that you served. But then you come back to the division, you get treated like a second class citizen. So I guess it's a... I don't know if it's a positive or a negative, at, at least the folks that I deployed with treated everybody equally mm. I mean, with regards to their vaccination status. could not care because it didn't matter. I, I think everybody knew that uh, six months into this, it, it was irrelevant, uh, but to echo what Danny said, nope. The cops got treated differently inside the division.
0: You know, um, something just came to mind Um, I don't know if if any of you guys went to like freedom rallies and stuff like that, and especially where you'd like march down the street. But um, I I did that in Edmonton and what the common experience would be is there would be police officers obviously filming us. And I'm just wondering, you know, if you were a police officer doing that, like, I I think I just feel really crummy because I, I would assume I would know these, these are not criminals. These are just citizens that are concerned about an issue, whether or not I agree with the issue or not. Um, I, I, I would feel self-conscious actually being the one behind the camera filming people. Did you guys ever have to do anything like that? Do you have any thoughts of like, what that experience would be like for the officer?
4: I've worked with units that filmed and as a sniper, we've actively filmed. Uh, if we were trying to get information on a crowd behavior. And uh, here I am, Sean, it's not very often I stick up for the police anymore. Uh, But the truth is a lot of those units were deployed to film uh, more for continuity and for evidentiary reasons or to send that information back to a command post, say, so the commanders could see what the crowds looked like to get a better idea of it. Uh, I don't well Never say never now, uh, but uh, generally not used for evidence of who's masking and who's not. But when things do go south and, and if there is a criminal event, it does make it easier to identify people later for sure. But I, your point taken?
0: Uh, well, I, I'm actually enjoying your explanation because like just as a citizen walking around, like to me, it made me feel like a criminal. And it actually made me feel like I was in a police state because it's not a normal state. I mean, I've been in big crowds before and I've never had police officers with cameras filming us. And so it made me feel terribly uncomfortable and and a little fearful, especially at the beginning when, you know, we just didn't know which direction this was going to go. So it's interesting to hear you say, no, no, this is actually something we would do for other reasons that other than intimidating the public, so to speak.
4: No, I'm the first to say that wouldn't be necessarily to intimidate, but uh, it goes both ways, right? So police are filmed everywhere they go now. And I'm the first to say that body worn cameras will exonerate police 99.9% of the time because it shows who truly said what. And the cameras back on the public, Uh, it's not an intimidation tactic per se, but if there are, folks there looking to cause trouble, it's a clue that you're being recorded.
0: So it it would be used as a crime prevention technique. Sure. Danny and Vincent, do you guys have any comments on either of the things we're talking about here?
2: Well, in my previous job, we often were monitoring large crowds, like similar to Rick from a sniper OP, like at an, an elevated position, Law, many, many times, watching big demonstrations or large crowds for like major events. And I don't uh, recall like mass recording, but quite often in the Ottawa area, a lot of those like the parliament precinct, for example, there's cameras everywhere anyway that were live streaming right into the command post. So that wasn't something that would be required from us, but we would definitely um, use our optics, like our binoculars and our spotting scopes and our cameras that we would have with us to capture images of people that we thought could, you know, based on their behavior, potentially be a threat, or we would also scan the crowd. Like if we received information from another unit about a specific individual, we would scan the crowd until we tried to locate that individual. And then we would photograph and disseminate that to the other teams and the command post, like Rick said. That's interesting. It's just interesting to hear kind of from the policing side, right? No, but I don't, I never really, I don't think I ever had to do anything like that for a freedom rally, but that's because I probably started going to them when they started early on. And so I wasn't ever, I don't ever remember being deployed to observe a freedom rally. But um, another thing to add to what Rick said, like, you know, a lot of people in Ottawa during the freedom convoy, Uh, who had you know people had never been there before and they were there was a, a heightened sense of anxiety because of the police presence including the snipers up on the rooftops around parliament hill but i mean for me that was an everyday thing almost right like we weren't up there every day but we were up there a lot for very minimal events quite often not even something nearly as large scale as the freedom convoy so again i think a lot of people felt like oh we're in a police state look they have snipers on the rooftop they're here to like intimidate us or to threaten us and that's that's a standard practice anytime there's a big event in downtown ottawa and so i don't it's more so like when i was doing the job it was about overseeing the crowd for their safety because you know in recent years we've seen you know vehicle vehicle attacks on large crowds we you know it's there to try and we were in position to try and identify and mitigate a threat early yeah no i'm, I'm i don't know about anyone else but i'm finding this fascinating i because
0: i you know i it, it was long before covid that you know i was sensitive to you know state and then police is synonymous with state and um I would notice if I was in Washington, DC, you know, in the Congress or, or Senate buildings, um, aside from how much harder it was to get in than, than it was the parliament buildings, but they would, there was total show of force, machine guns everywhere, obvious presence on roofs, obvious, where it doesn't have to be obvious. And yet at the same time in parliament, I wouldn't notice that. It, it, so if it was there, it would be less obvious. And so the decision, tactical decisions are made on how obvious we're going to be with our show of force. And it's changed. I mean, it's really changed. And so somebody's making that decision. And I I can say from the citizen side, like, I mean, at least for me, it made me really like the more force we show, the more uncomfortable I am. So it's just curious.
2: Well, I I can say that, like, the RCMP protective policing model is not just heavily influenced by the secret service it's pretty much copy and pasted just on a smaller scale so can you explain that further because well you know like um for example a lot of the duties that i used to perform that was all tactics and techniques that were adopted from the u.s secret service Hmm like embedding a more tactical presence into the protection of VIPs, like beyond just the suit and tie bodyguards. Uh, So that that was never my job, I was never a bodyguard, but uh, attaching a tactical component to a protective detail, that was something that the RCMP took directly from the Secret Service, including the sniper overwatch.
4: Interesting. And, you know, Sean, uh, finally, we something that we vary on in our opinions. Uh, I come from another perspective is that the more armed police I see, the safer I feel. But I know the inside of it probably better from the tactical world. Although so prior to 2020, I I would have I would have disagreed with you wholeheartedly. But today I'm the first to say Wow, police seem to have come out of their roles recently with what we've seen they've done uh, enforcing some of these irrational, immoral, obviously illegal dictates shoved down by the federal government. But prior to 2020, I'd be the first to argue that the police are there for your safety. And truthfully, when when I see a a sniper on the roof, I feel good about it. I uh, I feel good that I can bring my kids down there. Uh, yeah <laughs> they're they're not there for us, and i I'm sure I'd curl your hair if, if so would Danny if you knew why some some of our deployments were done, so those snipers that you see on the roof those are there on purpose they those are called overt deployments, so that you want the public to see that they're there, but I bet you for everyone that Danny did overtly, he did one covertly where you wouldn't know that there's police around with high powered optics and long guns for other defined threats. So here I am sitting on, sitting solidly on the fence where yes, they're there for your safety, but Holy cow, you're right. We need to ask questions today with uh, how the cops fell in, fell in line with enforcing immoral dictates.
0: Well, you know, it, I think there's been a whole cultural change. Like, so I'm, I'm 58 and when I was younger if you saw a police officer walking down the street like you had good feelings and but we used to do things differently like now now pretty well everything has become illegal like literally like there's just law after law after law after law and so like now if I see a police officer I'm like worried am am I like is there going to be some problem like it's it's literally switched from a positive feeling to and this isn't the police's fault this is this is the government's fault and maybe our society has changed although you know likely if we looked at overall statistics like we're just not as violent as we thought we we were but there can i just share a, a story with you and how a police officer responded to me so in and we'll even, you know, back up. Like, I mean, there was a time where we wouldn't even, uh, like, the, even the idea of holiday holiday time roadblocks, we didn't have them. And the Supreme Court of Canada had to wrestle with, will we allow the police, you know, around New Year's and Christmas because of Christmas parties, actually stop every car that, that goes by? Like, this is a cultural change because roadblocks are synonymous with police state and i mean that there's a real question as to whether or not we're any safer doing that and what are the consequences of allow of conditioning the citizens to accept having their travel stopped and so now let me get to the story so this would probably be about oh i'm trying to guess now because my my kids were younger Since 1995, I've been there's court in there used to be court in Vailmount McBride in the interior, like you know, once a month. And I've, I've been going out there since then. Now there's court about every other month, but it's like a hot summer day. So it's, it's going to be early July or early August because court was the first week, usually on the Thursday. Hot summer day, traveling in the middle of the day <clears throat> with my family to Vailmount because I'm duty counsel in court the next day. And on the Yellowhead, so this is one of Canada's two Trans Canada highways. The Valemount RCMP have all traffic stopped. They're not—they're not just stopping commercial traffic. So we've seen where you know every commercial truck can get stopped and checked, but they're regulated. No, this was every car, every truck in both directions, and a whole bunch of cars you know off the side. Big show of force, and. I felt like I had lost something because for the first time in my life, I couldn't get in a car on a hot summer day and drive without having to interact with the police. And I wrote a letter about it to the province newspaper, and they made it their letter of the week and published it on Sunday. And, and you know, literally, I, I said truthfully, I was glad my father wasn't there because he just would have gone ballistic. He would have thought that's pure police state. But I got a call from a, a retired Vancouver police officer. Who said, you know, the culture changed. That, you know, when he when he was in his early career, it truly was serve and protect. And you know, the citizen was, you know, was almost the object of affection from the police, but the culture changed to where you know the citizen was a suspect. And it and it became adversarial. And this is him explaining it to me. And he said the older guys just hated it. Now curiously you guys would have been part of what he would have described as the younger crew. So <clears throat> did you guys experience any kind of cultural change? Like I I haven't been on the inside and I've worked with police officers my whole career and and I I find, you know, 99.9% of them to be, you know, really genuinely caring people that, you know, are proud of the job that they do. And and for good reasons, right? But I'm just wondering if you guys have noticed that this kind of Change.
1: So uh, I'll interject on that one, um, Sean. When it comes to um, our expectations in policing and the officers, uh, everyone in Canada on a national level has seen what I call the integrity test. Uh, What we've experienced over the last three years, and I'm talking about the ramp up phase, the beginning phase, the fearful phase, the unknown phase of what we're dealing with and then information's coming out and we're starting to be able to assess and this was a test on everyone's integrity everyone's integrity and and police officers are no different because if we're going to assess and evaluate the people within our society first and foremost police officers are people first before they're police officers so in in one sense you know there is that that human spirit element and so what we've seen, as Rick has mentioned, you know, the one third, one third, one third, some of them understood, some of them didn't, some them aren't sure. But in that integrity test, I personally have a much higher expectation of police officers to get it right. And, and I think everyone in this room believes that there's an expectation that, you know, you're getting paid the big bucks, you're getting the training, you should get it right. When it comes to to integrity and and it's part of the ethical uh the ethics policies within all our all our departments all our police forces uh carry that within your ethics policy the value of integrity within the officers and so it was very disappointing for us i'm sure it's disappointing for everybody here to see the type of behavior i'm gonna i'm gonna refer to a lot of the news clips that we saw coming out about very abusive things taking place across the globe. You know, it was happening in Australia. The things that we saw, the choking, the violence for, against somebody who wasn't wearing a mask. So when it comes to people within the police community, um, there are a lot of officers that didn't get it right. And I would say that they failed miserably when it came to the ethics test, that failed miserably in their interpersonal relationships relationships with other officers that they're dealing with failed miserably and how they approach the public. It it was it was it was embarrassing. It was disgusting to see and it was a very shameful moment where I had to hang my head low every time I saw uh, young people, young children, elderly people being abused on these issues of masking and other issues. But I have had contact with many officers that were working that refused. Used to behave that way, that refused to enforce these types of policies, that, that did the right thing, that got the integrity test right, and uh, that uh, were also ashamed of, at the behavior that they were watching. We would see, in, you know, in my policing career, I would see something abusive like that or hear about something abusive like that maybe once every three to five years. It was extremely uncommon to hear about that type of an episode and um, in the last three years when this ramped up we were seeing it weekly in in Canada some episode somewhere in Canada popping up on on a video feed that was just terrible so that's my that's my position on what's happened in how people respond to fear and and how they couldn't keep it in check and how they weren't willing to do their homework and to listen to others who were trying to
5: explain the facts and the data
4: Sean what was the name of the f- uh, well-known lawyer in Edmonton that dealt with all the impaired Mr Gunn I forget his first name but uh uh I we don't Bruce have Dan. to Bruce Gunn thank you he was a brilliant lawyer that dealt with impaired driving charges and he's passed on now um but i wonder if he isn't rolling over in his grave so you talk about the ever encroaching loss of privileges and rights to canadians uh this is pre covid and i bear with me here folks i'm not up on my impaired driving charges never was but pre covid there was a federal law that changed that removed the requirement of suspicion to ask any driver of a motor vehicle to give a breath sample looking for alcohol so pre i'm going to guess at the year it was probably around 2018 i think correct me if i'm wrong or fact check me on that police needed suspicion to ask a canadian to give a sample of their breath uh, suspicion that they had used alcohol that night so in the suspicion is light like a a beer cap on the floor of your car or uh, even a smell of alcohol in the car or a, a beer in your coffee tray, would be enough to say hey have you been drinking and if they say no didn't matter, I would suspect you have been, and they could ask you to give a breath sample. Remember, refusal to give that sample of breath is a criminal offense. It's an indictable offense in Canada. That's gone. Police now can just simply tell you to give a breath sample without having any suspicion. And the reason why I'm, I'm talking about this is where was our leadership? Where Where were the old guys in 2018 to say, whoa, uh We're not going to enforce that in my police service because that sounds like a slippery slope to me. And I know Mr. Gunn would be making a living off of the appeals of those charges alone. And and I understand in the background there are some appeals coming that are going to be going through to higher courts. Mm -hmm. But what about the police? Where where was the bold leadership to even internally say, "Uh, no, don't be charged or don't be forcing people to give a breath sample unless you have suspicion it's that old adage that they keep on taking a little bit more away from you and now uh, that's a police state that's a gestapo like uh not skill sort of uh power that the, mm-hmm. that the police have now and so what disappoints me more than the collectivists that made that law is the leadership within the police service that said we're not enforcing that as a service go on
0: you know it's just interesting on that because i can think of of the courts too and and this is just kind of like a cultural move like if we if when we move away from cherishing individual rights like in individual freedoms and just allow them to be whittled away we we find ourselves in an interesting situation and It wasn't for this call, but within the last couple of days, I was just thinking to myself, um, it used to be that a penal law was read as restrictively as possible. So, and the rationale was, is, you know, if you're going to punish a citizen for breaking a law and we're all presumed to know the law, well, the law, you know, if if it prohibits something, it better be really clear. And we're going to read it down as much as the language will allow so that we're we're really not being unfair with somebody because the government can always change the law if, if they you know think the courts are not reading it as broad as they should. So this it's not like the state loses out. But then it switched to where the court would courts would do everything they possibly can to read into the law, make it as broadly as possible. And and it's just it's it was a fascinating cultural switch. Like we seem to have moved into an area where where it's just more and more and more okay for you know the state to to have more power over the citizen and it and it it's just interesting so um <clears throat> did you guys like did you notice just kind of broadly as kind of time went by like every institution is political because we can't we can't get out of that like let's not forget with covid i mean especially at the beginning there was real fear like until i figured out that this wasn't real. Like I thought, oh my gosh, like, you know, am I in danger? Are people I know in danger? And and a lot of people who never got out of that. Um it, I think this, like, we have to be kind to people, like at the same time, but it's just kind of interesting when we're dealing with people in authority. Like courts were in authority, and I can't point to a single court decision that will act as a break going forward. And I can't get my head around that. And I'm not aware of, you know, a single police force that stood up and said, No, we're not gonna arrest pastors for holding for holding church. And we're not we're not gonna arrest people for masking. Are you guys aware of anything like that or have any thoughts on what I've just said?
4: Yeah, sorry to jump in on you guys again, but i I see the political me- machine here in Edmonton, Sean, for sure. So Uh, there's a joke within the, amongst the cops, uh, about the Edmonton police commission, so don't forget the Edmonton police commission essentially hires our chief and, uh, they're called the, they're, they're tongue in cheek called the Edmonton defund the police commission. So they're not a law and order set of folks that are there to help bring law and order and they brought with them their collectivist ideologies. And when they bring, when they start hiring people under those ideologies, there's a trickle down, absolutely. So those collectivist ideas start at the top, and I spoke about this at the National Citizens Inquiry. That's why we need bold leadership uh, for a chief to say, no, 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 we're, we're we're not here to push an ideology. Although, obviously, the Edmonton Police Service chief, he, he was given his marching orders by the Edmonton Police Commission. And he will abide by that because they're signing his checks. That bold leadership that we need in all of these positions is to say, no, we're not here for an ideology. We will uh, rationally uh, use the laws to arrest bad guys to make Edmonton a safer city. And this this applies to every city across the nation. And to stay in our own lane, stay out of these social ideas of diversity, inclusivity, equity, uh, and and this is what's so frustrating, not just for the police officers, but it's got to be frustrating for the citizens of Edmonton when they see their uh, chief of police and his executive officer team dancing with uh, transvestite celebrations while there's a lockdown going on at the West Edmonton Mall because of a shooting right outside of the doors where, bunch of bad guys are trying to kill each other thank goodness they were just trying to kill each other and not uh, other good people uh, but that's frustrating not just again for the police so that's what's demoralizing for the cops is they're saying leave this politics out of it then why aren't we doing what we're good at and that's putting bad guys behind jail but the emphasis isn't there the, the emphasis from these political figures that are hired by political f- figures is to toe that party line so it if you can't tell, I'm I'm frustrated about it, and I, I speak to my colleagues about it every day still, and I hear it from my neighbors now. And like, what are you cops doing there? Why? And I'll, I was showing pictures of uh, police celebrating in uh, cultural activities that have nothing to do with policing. Why are the cops worried about that? Why aren't they concentrating on keeping our our streets safe? But. I'd never like to be negative and i like to end with a positive. Again, I'm taking my best Sean Buckley that I can. Uh, the good news is I think there's a cultural shift coming in uh, in Al- Alberta here with the election of Danielle Smith recently. Uh, she was just uh, quoted today as saying that Edmonton's best days are yet to come and it's going to be after we clean up some of the crime problems. So maybe there is a political shift coming where uh, the police will go back to what they're best at which is making
0: the streets safer for for their civilians yeah and and i know before before it happens rick that you only can stay with us for the first hour so if, if rick disappears it's not that you know he's having technical problems or or you know any anyone's unhappy But, you know, it is interesting. I think, you know, from a society perspective, we've got a lot of rethinking to do to like, I know there's so many people, um, street people in Edmonton, for example, and just, you know, we're seeing almost like a a social decay. And I I think that's cultural, like it puts police in a really tough situation when we're having cultural decay and it it just it adds to the stress. And so I, I really think we need to get back to the second commandment and and just start taking more responsibility for how we're treating each other and, and doing better. But on, on the policing, sure. front, do you, yeah, Vincent, jump in, please.
1: I was gonna say to Rick's point, um, I, I've I've had this conversation many, many times with people who just can't understand um, how the politics is permeating in the policing. And I like to explain it uh, in a way that was explained to me by by a very intelligent person that I met at the Freedom Convoy. Uh, when I was in Ottawa, uh, who's very connected to the federal government. And and they explain it like this. And, and this is quite simple. So in government, you have to imagine a layer, you know, there's just this horizontal line in government and uh, politics is above the line. All politics is above the line and civil service is below the line. And that line is, is a membrane and, and it's a thin membrane. But it needs to be there. We need to have separation between a public service between a public service and the political structure. And in this lower sphere of public service, law enforcement agencies are, are pretty high up in that in that lower level, very close to that membrane. And it appears that over time, that membrane is frayed and fractured very slowly, and it's it's, it's somewhat porous now. And we start to see the politics seep through that membrane from politics down into the the civil service and it permeates into uh, all kinds of aspects of civil service and you know to Rick's point this this problem of you know why is politics getting into policing it is and and policies are being created on a national level that trickle down to just about every level of government when it comes to things like recruitment and who you're going to hire and why you're going to hire based on this new metrics this new math and you know i I was very proud to join the service when when it was on the meritocracy system you know it was on a point system and you were scored on everything and only those people that scored the highest were the ones that were selected and that's the way they did it and we no longer have that system anymore
5: danny do you want to jump in
2: I think I stick with the theme that through my career, the things that I observed as far as a culture change was like Rick said, pretty rapidly, like pretty early in my career, I noticed a major transition from a focus on being good at law enforcement to a focus on pandering to political ideology and it was less about being good at law enforcement and just making sure that we appeared like we were good at law enforcement. And it was, there was a lot of theatrics. I noticed a lot of political influence in the RCMP. And I noticed a lot of theatrics, you know, a lot of, well, we just have to do this so we can check that box and tell the government that we have that capability, even if we don't actually have that capability. And so then that would come back to that bold leadership like someone who has the guts to say to the premier or the prime minister or our minister of public safety, like say, look, sir or ma'am, honestly, we just don't have that capability. You know, either we need funding to invest in that or we're gonna have to pass that responsibility off to someone else because it exceeds our capability. I've never really seen anyone with any rank ever have the courage to actually speak that truth to someone. So I think quite often the government and the Canadian public expects, like well, I'm, I'm talking from the RCMP point of view, expects that the RCMP has capabilities that we don't really have. And if we do, it would be a real like scab together response. It wouldn't be like a highly effective, coordinated, skilled response to more complex scenarios. Um, so, uh, the same themes, you know, uh, a decline in strong competent leadership, and uh, uh, definitely an infiltration of political influence into the police force. Yeah, I've, I've always um,
0: like one thing I, I've seen is that discretion. Like i I did a lot of criminal law for twenty nine years and i I saw you know they would take discretion away from the police officer, like let's say spousal assaults in British Columbia, where you know literally there had to be a charge, and taking discretion away from an officer on the ground is not good public policy it by any means and and I saw that as as a political move, and it must be frustrating for the officers. You know when they they basically certain expectations for things to happen, regardless of what they're observing on the ground. Did, were you guys ever frustrated with that type of thing where you felt your discretion was being fettered, and it wasn't it wasn't helpful for good outcomes?
4: I I think there's been a slippery slope, and uh, I, again it's a leadership problem. So we had same similar policies here at one time, Sean, where there would always be a charge at a disposal if uh, with or without the proper evidence, but um, uh, my point is with the leadership again. So uh, things have changed inside the servers, similarly to what's happened federally. So internally. So if, uh, if anybody speaks out against these dictates that are coming down from a political level, you're shunned within, the commissioned officers. So, uh, if if somebody wants to go against the grain of a dictate that's coming down from the, the, the feds, especially and let's just talk about COVID, you are out of the you are out of the fun club. You're not one of the cool kids anymore as a commissioned officer. So you're useless now. You're considered uh, persona non grata. If you speak out publicly, like I did, you're fired and it's working. So I've had phone calls recently, actually. I don't, I don't know why, what the difference is in the past month, but I've had phone calls from uh, executive officers and from cops on the street, not apologizing to me per se, but saying it's worse now and nobody's stepping out of line. There is a fear culture of, of cancel culture, right? It's, it's the same within the police service as it is in Hollywood. If you don't play the game, you don't play with the big kids. And if you speak out publicly, you're gone. And that's a, that's a nasty rule when we're talking about people's livelihoods. I, I can tell you from our own experience that uh, most cops aren't ready to take a wage cut like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the executive officers, if they have, uh more ambition to move on within either our police service or another one across Canada because there there are employment opportunities out there they're just putting their heads down sh- uh, shut up and uh toe the party line or else you're you're
0: not in the game, so yes well it's interesting, so Danny, but I've watched both you and Vincent kind of nodding your head. Do you guys wanna chime in on this? This is an interesting
2: point Well, I definitely. Like in my time working in the north, more so, was exposed to pressure to lay charges even when I didn't feel that there was sufficient evidence to do so. And uh, there, there was one instance where I actually got into an argument with an NCO, and I told him that if he wanted to lay the information, he could because I wasn't going to do it because I knew that the complainant was lying, and that fortunately (laughs) I got left alone in that instance. But I think as far as the cancel culture within the police force, well, I I definitely would agree with uh, everything that Rick had to say about that. It's um it existed before and probably even more so now. I hope that there'll be more officers that'll be waking up to what has happened the last 3 years, especially if they try and reimplement Masking mandates, etc. Again this fall, um, but I know uh, I, I knew I knew as soon as I started speaking publicly that my punishment was going to be swift and severe. <laughs> and and yet you did it. You did it anyway. So, so
0: tell us what what you were thinking because you know what you're saying is is important and I think people need to understand. Just the economic pressure. I mean, you've got, you know, a spouse and kids and mortgage and car payments, and, and, you know, especially the officers early on in their career. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I didn't have financial flexibility that I have now, right? Mm. So, you know, where I'm not, I'm not supporting kids. Like, my kids aren't going to go hungry because I'm not getting paid. They're, they're out in the world themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a, but as, you know we feel such responsibility for families when they're when they're young and so so Danny you must have felt tremendous pressure what was that like
2: yeah i mean it was a hard decision i tried to talk myself many times into finding an alternate avenue um but ultimately i mean we've all seen a pile of testimony from the medical and science experts that testified at the nci and all the people we were following prior to making our decisions. Um, I was convinced that the Canadian people were being lied to. They were being sold a false narrative about the safety and efficacy of the COVID shots. And they were also being withheld treatment that could keep people out of hospital and keep people alive. And so I felt both of those were criminal offenses that were leading to the death or serious injury and death of Canadians. And I, I referred to it at, in the office as crimes against humanity, and the RCMP was doing nothing about it because it was on such a large scale. Of course, yeah, it was directly impacting my family as well. So that was part of the decision making. And I did, I thought about just going away quietly getting another job and moving on with life. But I felt like if I didn't say or do something, I would hate myself because I would feel like a coward. Knowing what I knew, I felt like it was important that someone had to stand up to what was happening. And I didn't see anybody else in the RCMP doing it. So I actually, I seen like Vince, for example, Uh, an Ottawa paramedic speak out I saw uh, Chris Vandenbos from Police on Guard and that was kind of the little push I needed to put myself out there
0: so Danny can I tell you an interesting story so you know it was the dark days and I and and funny that my wife and I are in bail for court and she shows me it's you know it's probably about 9 30 10 o'clock at night where and but we stay up to watch it a video of you speaking and i i don't know what the occasion was but i have to tell you it was so inspiring to to see you you saw it too didn't you like rick's like i danny i saw you standing up and giving a powerful speech and it inspired me i you know i'm happy to publicly thank you for what you did and and the sacrifice that you made i'm proud of all three of you guys just for what you've done and and then just also proud for the service i i think a lot of people don't understand um, the stress of being a police officer and the risk of being a police officer and just how you know how you have to like just the mental demands of having to treat people well and deal with them and figure out what's going on and the situational awareness i don't i don't envy the careers that you guys have. And I, I think we're all very proud. Well, we are We're all proud of your service. So thank you.
4: Sean, can I jump in and make another Danny Bulford plug, please? Yeah, yes. please do. <laughs> Again, proudly, I, I'm so proud to be associated with this group because Danny in large part is uh, the reason I'm here. And uh, some people think, really? You're happy that you're here? Yes, I've, this has been such a journey. And Danny's the one that told me, Rick, don't believe me. On the phone he says go see for yourself the mainstream media is lying but i uh so i'm so proud that i can say that danny was a big influence on my life before i turn into a pumpkin here i, I am triple book tonight i want to leave you with something else sean and i i think i've mentioned this to danny before i've got a great round table for you because you were kind of leading into why is it certain cops that spoke up and most didn't I've got a question for you on the whole sniper thing. And Vincent also was in the emergency response teams. So look what happened in Canada. Who was the first sniper to speak up? Well, he's here with us today. It was Danny Bulford. And then there was another guy. I'm trying to do these in order. uh, Constable Rob Kitchen out of Edmonton. He was a PPCLI master sniper. He got fired for not disclosing his vaccination status in Edmonton. And then there was this other idiot, Rick Abbott. He was a sniper and he got outed for speaking up. But then look what happened with one of our JTF2 snipers. There's uh, this is public info, Dallas Alexander. He was essentially pushed out because he spoke back against the federal mandates. And then uh, Danny, you might be able to help me with the last guy. There was another PPCLI sniper that was uh, pushed out here recently when the within the past few months. Anyway, my point is, I think this is a roundtable for you, Sean, to get together these five Canadian snipers that have something in common. I know on the SWAT mm-hmm. teams, they used to tease the snipers versus the door kickers, and they said, you snipers are a little bit different. You're kind of like the goalie of a, of a hockey team. And uh, I'd, I'd like to see a, a meta-analysis done on goalies and how many of them stuck up for... Uh, how many of them stuck up for the charter of rights?
2: Well, so if oh, I go, Danny, yeah. A lot of the internal support that I've received from the tactical police community, the majority have been snipers. Maybe that's just because that's who knew me best, but I, I would joke that it's because we're more cerebral than the door kickers. But. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's even interesting to hear the terms you guys use for each other, right? The yeah. doorkeepers.
4: What,
5: I what do you apologize, think?
0: Sean. I have oh, to. Yeah, take oh, yeah. No, and Rick, thank, thank you for joining us. And uh, and it's actually just been a pleasure getting to know you through this experience. It's the people that we meet at, along the way that make the biggest difference. And uh, all three of you guys have inspired me tremendously. So, really thank you for joining us, Rick. Don't stop on my account. Keep on going, boys. Yeah. Thank you right, very we're much. Gonna, we're going to keep going. So, so just we'll we'll segue out and um, how how do you guys think we can make this turn this around? Like, is it <clears throat> what what could be done to? Because I I think um, this politicization is is probably more of a, a societal thing. But I'm just wondering if you guys can think of of um anything that um might help the police do a better job like i i know i've i've got something that i can bring up and if you want i can i can start just to get the conversation going and vincent it might have been a conversation i had with you um years like now this would probably be at least a year and a half maybe two years ago and it may not have been you it might have been um but i i was you know Starting a group to um, start investigating potential crimes connected with COVID, and so I was I was contacting people like you, um, you know, to see, if, you know, what was already going on, and uh, somebody shared with me, and I think it was you, Vincent, that a lot of police officers actually don't understand that the Constitution is is you know the paramount law in Canada, and you know so if you're you know, sworn to uphold the law, you better be aware of Section 52 of the Constitution Act that makes the Constitution the primary law. So that a, an officer, if they're going and, you know, arresting a, a pastor for violating some bylaw, that, you know, maybe freedom of assembly and, and freedom of religion should be playing in the officer's mind and and maybe even governing, you know, the CEO, whether or not they would be sending officers to go and undertake that task. So for me, um, I would be thinking, I would want every police officer to at least understand that our our charter rights are our paramount law, and that and that every other law has to you know, bend to that in a, in a reasonable fashion. So I was just trying to figure out how can we make it better right because the the whole purpose of the NCI you know is not just to learn but also to try and figure out well
1: how how do we do this better the next time? Well, Sean, are you referring to in the policing community or are you talking about global? I
0: I was speaking to some officer like yourself who was telling me that when they were speaking with a lot of police officers, the officers actually didn't understand that the charter is the supreme law. Like they actually hadn't been taught that. And so you actually have a factual misunderstanding. Right.
1: Right. Uh, You know, so we have we have uh, federal law uh, we have provincial laws, we have federal laws, but the charter is neither the charter is a national law uh, it, it's a law that the entire nation got behind all provinces got behind it, and the entire country got behind it so it's our national uh, law in section fifty two one of the the um, the constitution makes it very clear that any law that's really you know coming into place that uh, is is in conflict with the Charter is null and void and has no authority whatsoever. And I was of the belief right from the beginning that the courts would see that very easily. That was a no brainer. And, and the courts would definitely side with side with the evidence, side, side with the documentation and the evidence, because what's required in the notwithstanding clause, of course, is that um, it has to be demonstrably je- uh, demonstrated. And at no time is our government ever uh, from the beginning ever demonstrably demonstrated anything uh, provided any evidence that lockdowns are going to uh, be necessary and they're going to work or be effective or that masks are going to be effective or that six feet of social distancing is going to be effective none of it has ever been demonstrated and with the power of time we've now had three years with the power of time we can look back and say that we were right because we we couldn't find that information, it was never provided to us. And now looking at the scientific information, it's not there, there's nothing to indicate that 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 is a scientific, objective, rational uh, course of action. You know, we haven't haven't talked about the emergency procedures that were in place prior to. I know the OPP and other police agents and provinces and and the federal government have all kinds of plans that are already in place. And it makes sense because you don't think rationally when you're under a tremendous amount of fear. So you make those plans calmly while you're not under fear. And they seem to all have gotten thrown out the window, not just in Canada, in every other country, every Western nation.
0: Now, Vincent, can I just circle back though? Like, are you... And and for you, Danny, too. Is I mean, were you guys trained? And Vincent, you had started by saying you started in '82 when our our charter came into force. So were you? I mean, was it made crystal clear to you guys? You know what the charter. You know basically what our basic rights are, and and how they interface. Like I know I know Section Ten, the right to counsel, all of that. You guys would have been briefed totally on that because you know you slip up the wrong way, and all of a sudden something somebody says can't get in. But I mean, you know, but there are other ones like, you know, freedom of expression and freedom of religion and, and stuff like that, that really wouldn't in,
1: you
0: wouldn't you wouldn't be interacting with on a on a daily basis.
1: Well, nobody's talking about Section 52 in, in your training. Nobody, nobody's covering that. And, and you know, the, the thing I can tell you, I can't I can't tell you the details about everything I was trained in, but I can tell you the details of things I was never trained in. I was never trained in how to respond to a tyrannical government, how, how our policing agency responds to a tyrannical government. We didn't get that course. I don't know, but maybe Danny got it. I didn't get that course. No, I didn't think so. No. you know, What do you do when your government goes rogue? How do you, how do you deal with that from a policing perspective? And going up the chain of command in policing, it's the Solicitor General that really runs the show. The Solicitor General is in charge of policing services. And I know there was a plea that was made right from the beginning that the solicitor general and the attorney general and the judges um, you know all get together with the chiefs and commissioners you guys need to have a powwow and discuss this because this is going sideways and it didn't seem to happen now in ontario when first lockdown happened when the first lockdown was announced there was a message that was put out the first message to come out was by the ontario chiefs of police association and I knew as soon as I heard that word, it means they've gotten together, they've had a powwow, they've had a conference, and this message no no one chief or commissioner wants to speak. So the message came from the Ontario Chiefs of Police Association, which is the head of all of them together, and they said, "You're going too far. We're not going to go that far. We're just not going to accept that type of authority. Thanks, but no thanks. We're not going to do that." And things rolled back in in terms of. Random stop and search authority. You know, you're walking down oh, the street. Where you right. have the authority. Yeah. So can that happened. You just, can you and just then, go into a little
0: more detail about what exactly happened? Because, because that's that's actually an important point. They they did draw a line.
1: So yeah. So what happened yeah. was the 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 uh, the, the solicitor general had had announced the authority was granted to do this. The Ontario chief Chiefs of Police met very quickly. they had a conference and they the announcement came from the Ontario Chiefs of Police. It didn't come from individual police services it came from the Ontario Chiefs of Police and they said, we're not going to accept that authority that's going too far. we're just not going to randomly stop and search vehicles and stop stop and search pedestrians for being out of their home like we're just not going to do it so they they did enforce other measures, but they didn't go to the extreme of, you know, if we catch you out of your house, that's it, you're in violation. So um, following that, that was the first lockdown in Ontario. And then uh, about two months later or so came the second lockdown. So we were locked down for a short period of time that was lifted and then came a second lockdown. And when the second lockdown came, the first tweet that was issued was not from the Ontario chief of police. The first tweet was tweeted by the commissioner of the OPP saying that we are definitely going to do this. Absolutely. We're going to follow through on this, Uh, essentially saying that we're now given this authority similar to the initial authority. And yes, we're going to do it. Followed by dozens and dozens of tweets from other Ontario police agencies saying, no, we are not going to do this. And that created an incredible fracture in Ontario that the Solicitor General had to, within 48 hours, retract that policy. Mm. So we knew that there was now disagreement between the Ontario Provincial Police and all the other police services, or I should say most of the other police services. And I'm not surprised because the relationship between the Premier of Ontario and the Commissioner of the OPP, uh, you know they are they are very very close in their power structure and their appointments. You know it's so the commissioner, the the Premier of Ontario is, is appointing the commissioner, uh, much like what we see with the appointments of the RCMP Commissioner and the Prime Minister. So uh, our our clearly our Commissioner uh, had some conversation where he was in a position of how Having to say yes. And the other chiefs who were not having that same type of relationship were in a position where they can say no. And clearly, we see a political uh, involvement there. It, it, appears, it appears that way. There's no question about it. So, you know, Sean, I, I just want to touch on this issue of leadership mm-hmm. leadership in, in these decision making processes. Um, I, I I was, I was really amazed at something that I discovered following my testimony at the NCI It was within about 48 hours of having testified. I kept asking myself the question, you know, you had asked me a question of why police went along with this. And I kept asking myself that same question of, you know, there's, there's more to it. Like, I, I really don't have an answer for you. And what I really discovered was something that I had taken for granted my entire career, and I hadn't given it thought until after my testimony, was that when I first started my career, I really didn't have an intention of going through the promotional process and one day becoming the commissioner or something. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to be a cop. I just wanted to go out there and do my job. And I I discovered very, very early in my career that I can see certain individuals that I work with and their behavior, uh, the behavior of those individuals who are very interested in the promotional process was somewhat different than the behavior of others and i when i really got to study it and look at it and see what was required to reach that bar i just told myself early in my career i am never ever going to go through the promotional process i can see what it's in, what it involves i can see that you really have to be a yes man mm. in order to get that position and and I'm not interested. I'm just. I just want to do my job, and I don't want to play the political side. And as a result, as as my career went on, there were a number of things that I was ordered to do or told to do that I knew was either immoral, unethical, or just downright illegal. Uh, and I just say no. I'm. I'm not going to do that. And it wasn't often, but it was on occasion. And where I was threatened that I would have to report to senior command staff who were also involved, I said, I don't care. I'm not going to do it. You're just not going to get me to do it. I'm not going to do it. And the problem just went away. Nothing ever happened. But I didn't realize until years later that it's easy to do that. It's easy to say no. It's easy to push back because I'm not going through the promotional process. But those individuals that seriously consider Litter, going to the next pay grade or working their way up the chain, um, they're going to have to realize that their opportunity for advancement is extremely uh, just not going to happen. It's going to it's just going to be brought to a standstill if they don't comply with the demands that are put upon them. And and I'm not talking about not being obedient to to senior officers. I'm talking about there are things that really sometimes you shouldn't do, and sometimes you have to question things. And so it was clear that a a number of people who are very serious in terms of advancement um, are not going to question those things and are going to do what they're told because they're they're very serious about that promotional process, the next pay grade, the next you know, pip on the arm or stripe. Uh, But that being said, you know, that being said, I I do need to say that um, there are a lot of really excellent Fantastic people working within the organization, excellent, excellent, just stellar.
5: Yeah, I, work within the organization.
1: I, I, but that being said, my last point on this is that uh, towards the end of my career, um you know, when when you would see somebody get promoted that you knew was a fantastic person who had the right skills, you know, who they made the right choice, that became a, an oddity, and you'd say, "Wow, how did that actually happen?" Because That's that's not commonplace, in my opinion. That just didn't seem to be commonplace.
0: So one possible change would be a a change in promotional structure and and that so that people that actually are willing to stand up for their ethics are not, you know, discarded for actually doing that in the past. That's interesting. Danny, did you want to chime in on any of that?
2: Well, I think Vince did a great job explaining probably my exact same observations about the promotional process within the RCMP. It's the same. Um, it, sometimes you're fortunate to get a commanding officer or someone of uh, higher rank that's really switched on, really competent and has integrity. But my overall experience is that the really hardworking cops who just want to be good at being a cop like Vince said they don't want to climb to those executive ranks because the the higher you go the more administrative and political your job becomes and the less focused on actual law enforcement which most people get into policing to be cops and then so you get the the people who end up getting up into those ranks are the people who spend all of their time avoiding police work and writing up their competency resumes to show how fantastic they are, to write about how great they are. And you'll even you even talk to other officers that you admire that have gone through the promotional process a number of times. And if they're kind of similar in uh, personality as yourself, you'll always hear this same thing like, oh, it's a gross process. It feels gross to write about how great you are because, you know, your credit belongs to your entire team, not just you. Mm -hmm. But in order to be promoted, you have to go through this. Uh, You have to write all these examples about how you managed all these specific scenarios and check all these specific boxes. And it's all about how great I am and all the things I did. And it is, it doesn't feel good. I only went through it one time. Um, But, you know, the... The best, the best cops overall, in general, they want to stay operational, you know, maybe until they get to a point where it's like, okay, you know what, I, my body needs a break or my family needs a break from me being go, go, go all the time. And then they'll try and look for something that's a little more administrative. But, um, I would also say that the, the PM or the premier directly appointing someone of their choosing is a major problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, You know, my experience in the RCMP is almost every single commissioner had some kind of scandal around them right around the time that they decided to resign and fade off into distance memory and then get rewarded with some Gucci job with Interpol or the United Nations. And nothing changes. You know, they promise all this change. We're going to modernize this, we're going to modernize that. But the same culture exists where it's, if you tow the if you tow the line, you're rewarded. If you if you push back and you keep it internal, it can stall your career. Whoa. But you know you're you're you know you it's hard to get fired from the RCMP. But if you speak out publicly, you you become a pariah, and then um, you are persona non grata. And I, guess I'll, I I can chime in with my personal experience with that. I was always very curious as to how people within the organization reacted to what I said before and my involvement Ooh. with Convoy. And I recently just got my first wave of disclosure from my RCMP ATIP request. I'm still waiting for a second wave and uh, from the OPP and the Ottawa police as well. And um, there's not one comment in 842, 824 pages of disclosure, not one comment about, hey, has anyone looked at what Danny Beaufort's saying? Or, hey, has anyone looked into what Danny Beaufort's saying? Should we we be concerned about this? The overall consensus was that I have become mentally ill. I am a potential insider threat with my inside knowledge of the NCR and my training. And I am an, an, a vocal anti-vaxxer. And that's pretty much And that, That's gone down all kinds of conspiracy rabbit holes. It, those were direct quotes from a supervisor of mine. And, I, and that was a man that I f- loved like a brother at one time. And so I, it didn't leave me feeling very optimistic about the, the internal commentary that's going on in the RCMP.
0: Now, what was the time frame of, of like, because you haven't, you haven't been, you know, the trucker protest was, you know, almost a year and a half ago now. Like, so what, are these comments that, that are made,
2: you know, at least over a year ago? Oh yeah, Mo- most of the, most of those, that commentary was made um, from late uh, fall of 2021 until after the convoy. Yeah, so I really wonder, like, how would
0: it be today? Because remember, you, you know, you couldn't step out at all, right? And, yeah. like, it's funny. So Rick was talking about posties Hold the Line. They had an event this last Saturday, and I'm at this event, and, and, and you know, the speakers are all finished, and now people are just visiting. And I was speaking with a, a lady who told me, well, I'm a, a teacher's assistant. And she was saying, you know, the and I forget now if it was just the school – or the school district but you know an email was sent out to all the staff saying you will have to get up to date on your COVID vaccines and and you know I don't even know like what is up to date now is that four is it five like lord knows but what was interesting was she said well there was so much email back negative saying no I this is a bad idea and I don't want to do this and that the school or school board, whichever it was, backed down and withdrew that policy. And I was thinking, you know, well, two years ago, the first person that sent an email, you know, criticizing, it would have been swarmed by everyone else and smothered. And I thought, well, like, that is a huge change. In, and I found it, like, super encouraging. I mean, so here we had a school or school district back down because of pushback about getting vaccinated and then um i'm aware of a so my wife was is a realtor and she's having a conversation with another realtor and the other realtor is talking about how everyone's sick and it's the vaccine see because she would have conversations with other realtors and other she's like in contact with so many people she just has interesting conversations so there would previously be conversations about everyone being sick but not drawing the connection to the vaccine. And here it was somebody, you know, initiating the conversation and yeah, everyone's sick and it's the vaccine. And I, so I'm just, you know, I think the narrative's changing and I think there's more of us. So I'd be curious to see what they would say now.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I have had almost no contact with any of my former teammates, except for those same, the ones who endured the same kind of treatment that I did, and and some people who have since moved on and left the team, um. But I think, <laughs> I'm also, if they're caught communicating with me, they might get themselves in trouble and uh, have their security clearance revoked. So, who knows? But I, I, I haven't heard from I haven't heard from many people, saying like, oh my god, we see what you were saying and you were right. I haven't had any like reconciliation phone calls, although I did have an acknowledgement from a friend of mine, like a personal friend outside of policing from uh, the former community that I used to live in. He said that like our group of dads that used to hang Mm -hmm. out like uh, school and hockey dads, he said they were all playing cards recently. And uh, my name or my Me and my wife, our our name came up and uh, one of the dads piped up and said, huh, turns out they're right about everything, hey? And then the conversation just kind of carried on. So hopefully, hopefully that's a positive thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it, I think it is.
0: So, I I mean, if, if, you know, if we can turn things positive, it, it truly was just an amazing campaign of you know, information, and it was just relentless. And, you know, that's the strange thing is most of us, um, you know, we act, we act, you know, rationally and predictably based on what we believe to be true. So, you know, like, I I just hope we can be really kind with each other and just forgive and go on because the reality is, is is there's so many people that are hurt right now. And and not even just physically, like we had um, on a Twitter space, and this this might be like six weeks or two months ago, Scarlett Martin. And you know Scarlett, Vincent, I think, don't you? She was a paramedic that testified. And um, she was sharing on this NCI Twitter space. Um, so she's gotten back to work. She got forced off of work because she she wouldn't get vaccinated. And then, you know, whatever district she works for, people that are unvaccinated were allowed to go back to work. So she's working as a paramedic again, but she was talking about, you know, nursing staff who, you know, took the vaccine, um, referring to it as needle rape. So um, so there, and which I, you know, is, you know, quite a bit of an offensive term, but, you know, needle rape, rape and actually complaining that, you know, if they were raped sexually, they would know quite quickly whether or not they had caught you know they've been harmed physically because you'd go and get your you know sexually transmitted disease tests and you'd know but they're frustrated they don't know with this one if they've been hurt and they're bitter and like so a lot of people because they they needed to took it but there's a lot of anger there like i and and i hadn't understood that there was you know that type of suffering going on um, like, I, could you imagine the stress of not knowing if you were injured, but but having enough knowledge to appreciate that maybe you should be concerned? Like, there's really some people that that um, like there's 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 so much damage that that we're not even aware of um, with what we've done. I mean, even if we were injecting people with saline, just the idea, even though you did it, like. Some, I was failing to appreciate, well, you know, the people that played along, I mean, they, they can still be psychologically damaged and emotionally and spiritually damaged by being forced to accept a treatment,
1: you know, whether the treatment. Well, Sean, you had said earlier um, that you believed you were doing the right thing. And then you just recently said something about the information you have. So when you believe you do the right thing, you're talking about a subjective position. But it, it goes beyond that for us, and I know for you, this is objective. You actually have the data. You know the data. You've looked at the data, and and, and you know this isn't a a um, a dogmatic position for you. This is like, look, I've done my research. I've I'm looking at this data that's coming out, and it's it's warning signs, right? So in policing. Thing. You know, having been a forensic investigator, I noticed that my my peers during my my investigations on scene, my per, my peers might take a different position on uh, the outcome of a case uh, as the as the information is coming together. And I'd say, no, you're that's that's not what happened. You're, you're completely wrong. I'm looking at the evidence, and I can analyze the evidence, and I can do my mathematical computations, and I can do my formulas, and I can tell you that here's what it's telling me you know the the um testimonial evidence you're getting is either false or inaccurate because this is what the evidence shows me so i'm very confident that way so i'm just going to shift the position here for a second so we get a, a police detective in ottawa named helen grew mm, who yeah. uh, is, is, is performing uh her you know doing her duties and and her duties are dealing with sexual assault and child abuse and she's she's a member Member of that unit, which, which is a, uh, a very high position to be. You've really got to know what you're doing and have good training to be in that position. And this officer, you know, sees that there could be a correlation between a bunch of in- infant deaths that are happening very quickly in Ottawa in a short period of time and makes a decision to uh, make a phone call it, to get some it's information. I'm
0: just going to stop because you're breaking up. So I just want the the people watching to understand. So the correlation was between uh, infant deaths and recent vaccination of the mothers, right?
1: Infant deaths and vaccination status.
0: Right. Okay.
1: And so uh, as a result of making an inquiry, the, the wrath of hell comes down on that officer. Uh, and uh, she's been charged under the police services act and is now dealing with this case. Well, the the information uh, that has come out so far from the first witness, which is her supervisor within that case, indicates that uh, he had made a comment to the investigative team to never mention COVID or the vaccine. She was instructed and their team was instructed that way. I mean, think of the think of the danger associated with being in, involved in investigation and your, your gut feeling says, based on your knowledge, uh, I'm gonna pursue this direction. And then a huge roadblock goes up and says, no, nobody shall pursue that direction. Uh, that's just not how we do police work. That's not how an investigation works. Yet this officer is now charged under the police services act. And her own uh, association would, would not provide costs for legal representation. Mm. And this is an ongoing case. This is a huge embarrassment to the Ottawa Police Service. And it's a lesson for everyone to learn that it, it sounds like, you know, it's a witch hunt to go after someone who made a phone call to ask a question, yet the issue surrounding the infant deaths has still gone unanswered and is not being looked at. This is insane.
0: Yeah, no I'm I'm aware of that case. I think I met her at the Ottawa hearings. I think she attended.
2: So I I attended the first day of her disciplinary hearing here in Ottawa and very much her her interview was so well done and was so detailed. She was so prepared for it when they played the audio of her interview. But what what uh, the prosecutor kind of made a Freudian slip during the um, during the hearing, and basically to me revealed the whole motive behind this by saying that. We this hearing is not designed to give Detective Brews a platform to continue. One moment, please.
0: Kids, sorry, but nope. hey, be then, be thankful they're little and and still at home because it's sad when they grow up and oh, I and know. they're not at
2: home anymore. So, but the uh, the prosecution said this hearing is not designed to give detective Grews a platform to continue spreading uh, misinformation. And that to me was just like, okay, there it is. That's, that's the tagline that they just label everything, right? Like forget about the evidence, forget about all the evidence that she's laying out in front of you to look at, to determine whether or not she had um, grounds to do the investigation that she was doing, even though, She was being told not or well, she wasn't even being told not to. She had even reported it to the chief of she had reported her concerns to the chief of police and meetings with him, along with reporting uh, injuries of vaccinated Ottawa police officers to the chief because some would speak on their behalf. But others were afraid. Other officers within the Ottawa police service were afraid to speak about their own personal vaccine injuries to their commander, to their chief for fear of repercussion. So, you know, another thing that was just a gross misstep or uh, overreach, it was the fact that she was wiretapped during the, the Emergencies Act for 36 hours. I, she wasn't giving me any kind of information. We, 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 she wasn't communicating with me in any way. And I think, I suspect that's why they were wiretapping Ottawa police officers for that 36 hours. It seems like any Ottawa police uh, staff that were unvaccinated were wiretapped for that 36 hours, just probably likely based on their vaccination status. So, of course, they must be Freedom Convoy supporters, like by default in the mind of the Ottawa Police Service. No, as far as I'm as far as I'm aware, no part six six was ever filed afterward. Like uh, they were granted the my understanding is that they were granted the verbal authorization. To put it up under the uh, in because of the invocation of the Emergencies Act, but my understanding is that typically after that 36 hours there should they have that 36 hour window to get their Part Six application prepared and and uh, before the judge. To my best of my knowledge, that was never done. So, Danny,
0: are you telling us that Ottawa police officers who were unvaccinated were all because of their status wiretapped for that 36 hours?
2: I believe that's the case. Yes, because it wasn't like I, just it wasn't just Detective Drew. Even uh, Rob Stocky, who's a retired Ottawa police officer, was wiretapped during that time. Oh wow! I I wasn't aware of that. I like as a lawyer, I
0: can't get my head. Re- How can you get a judicial authorization based on s- the status of somebody, whether they've taken a medical treatment or that, for the purposes of wiretapping?
2: Well, I. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interested. It would be interesting to know how they worded that verbal lap, that verbal rationale to get that verbal authorization. But well, it, it should
0: be recorded. That should be recorded.
2: It to, should be. So that's well. It seems
1: uh, like they didn't, uh, they didn't actually proceed. They just utilized that thirty six hour clause and then abandoned it after that.
2: To the best of my knowledge, that's what happened. Yes. did you see now that that is
0: a, an egregious you know, breach of process. I mean, it, to target people based on a vaccination status. So Danny, you were, you were probably wiretapped for a long period of time.
2: I'm sure I was, but I, I never received any notification that I was. And there's, not, there's no information in my RCMP package to indicate that I was, but I suspect if I was tapped, it would have been by either OPP or Ottawa police because OPP was lead on intelligence during that time, but Ottawa police would have been in charge of the criminal investigation.
0: Now, Danny, some of the people watching, in fact, many of them may not have seen your testimony at the NCI and and not be familiar with your participation at or attendance, I should say, at the uh, trucker convoy. Do you want to just maybe briefly share what you saw and perhaps contrast that with, with the media reporting you were aware of?
2: Yeah, so I volunteered to help uh, the convoy in like a volunteer security slash police liaison role. And so I was speaking with the different police services very regular, almost daily, um, especially the OPP when they kind of took over the police liaison teams and trying to make sure that there was uh, information sharing about anything that could be related to public safety. And what i can tell you from my first hand experience like yes it was big yes there was trucks and people all over the downtown ottawa streets but there was no violence zero violence until the police operation began and then the violence was on behalf of the police there was there was no arson there was no stealing from a homeless shelter almost all of those media reports that were designed to paint the Freedom Convoy in a negative light as a bunch of like misogynist, white supremacist, um, right wing uh, conspiracy theorists was has been uh, retracted by a lot of the mainstream news outlets that publish those stories. And if you if you uh, if you want to know the details about that, like the narrative, like the false narrative versus what really happened, uh, Tom Quiggin. Wrote a book called "Eyewitness to Deceit," and he was a former military intelligence officer who then worked as a civilian intelligence uh, analyst for the RCMP National Security Section, and then also for the Privy Council. So he he's he's very very well uh, versed on the national security apparatus in Canada, and he was also uh, supporting the Freedom Convoy was with, with his intelligence background. And so he, that book details pretty much the whole false narrative from the Trudeau government and the government-funded media and contrasts it to what was actually happening on the ground and how a lot of those stories were retracted. It did end up retracted you know, quite quietly unless you're someone like us who has been awake and looking for that information. Right. Right.
0: But I mean, just, you know, and thank you because I think some people just don't understand that it truly was a peaceful process and that this reporting and and literally demonization of protesters and you use the terms, you know, white misogynist, because those were terms used by our esteemed leader. So um, and Vincent, you were there,
1: too. Yeah. And I I have to call it now, now that it's been uh, almost two years, a year and a half. I'm going to call it the most unusual battle that I've ever been involved in because everybody that I dealt with on the freedom side were fighting as hard as they could to make it as happy and peaceful as they could. And you can see that the media was fighting as hard as they could to make it look like something that it wasn't. So where we were having a good time and, and, uh, and uh, really rejoicing and, and making sure that everything was safe. Uh, everything was not violent and calm and, and um, very, very peaceful. Um, there were players that were fighting to do the opposite. And so we knew that that was happening on their side. And we just did everything we could to keep it peaceful and happy and calm. And uh, until as Danny says, until the police showed up at the end to shut it down, that's when the violence happened and it was on, on the part of the police. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now... And and we all owe a debt of gratitude to all the the people that were there and attended because we weren't, we weren't locked down last winter. And, um, and we owe that to the truckers. I mean, they're probably going to try this winter. I mean, the trial balloons are being flown, but there's pushback now. So, I mean, I, I think that the truckers changed history and are, are responsible for, you know, having the governments back down and I thank you guys for participating in that but can you share with us just kind of uh, my understanding was this it was just it was magical in you know just people coming together to you know to peacefully protest and just to be heard and just to say no we we've, we've had enough and and let's have a dialogue I mean the truckers were just trying to have a conversation with the prime minister and refused but can you share with us just kind of some of you know some of what it was like to be there
2: it was the greatest event I've ever been a part of in my life you know I mean minus the birth of my children it was uh it was when I actually got to go downtown and experience it myself it was almost euphoric right like you you could feel the the energy was buzzing all around downtown especially in that that Wellington stretch right by Parliament Hill and everywhere you went people were just like everywhere you went people would give you a big hug you didn't you didn't know them they just everyone was so happy and the, the people would be crying it was a real sense of hope because i know you know even myself people were desperate there was a real fear a real i he, I heard it all the time and i still hear people talk about it now that their people in canada were afraid that they were going to be rounded up and put in camps Mm -hmm. and people were afraid that the police were going to come door to door with public health officials and force like hold people down and force needles into their arms those are real fears that canadians had and i heard about it all the time and even i had my moments where i was like okay if that starts to happen, where am I going? What am I doing? What am I, how am I going to protect my family? And, and that's coming from a police insider, right? But I, I had lost faith that the police would protect me and that they would, that they wouldn't just go along with it. And I know like, and if I was feeling that, I can only imagine what someone who has no experience with the police would be thinking and feeling and how desperate they must have been feeling at that time. So I do. I credit the convoy. They did. They were the genesis for the removal of mandates and for the backdown of restrictions, because that was the government's little slap in the face that you, they had gone way too far. And giving us hope. Yeah.
5: Vincent, what, what was it like for you?
0: Oh, I think Vincent's been frozen. Oh, there you go.
1: So repeat that, John.
0: I was just asking what what was the trucker convoy like for you what was the experience like
1: uh yeah i'd have to repeat danny's sentiments and uh, um, i was uh, trying to help as best i could both danny where he was and at the other operation center and um, it was something unlike i've ever seen in my life Um, a very very important event a very important time in canadian history and very I was very proud to be there, to be a part of that and what was going on. Um, you know, there are there are so many moments and so many memories. Um, time time just sort of stood stood still for those weeks and uh, the the number of things that happened. And I have to say the, the relationship with the on site police was for the most part, very, very good for the, the first bit before before it was shut down. And um, probably the funniest thing that happened when I was there it was it was kind of comical. I was working with uh, another um, another police uh, former police officer in in assisting, and the two of us had to get from one operation center to the other operations quickly. So we were we were uh, actually marching together side by to side very quickly from one location to the next. And in doing so, we we were passing one of the police cars. And I know we were in lockstep when we were marching, and, and our arms were swinging, and as we went past the police car, the officer got out and he said, "Hey guys, you're going to give it away. You guys look too obvious. they're going to know your cops. You know they're going to know you're on our side." And I, we just stopped and laughed, and I said, "No, <laughs> you're mistaken. We're actually on the other side." So it was very interesting that we were mistaken as undercover operatives trying to get somewhere when we, we weren't undercover. we were just trying to help.
0: Mm-hmm. What what do you guys think about um you know some of the people being charged, some of the organizers being charged, both not just criminally, but with civil action that you know with you know just claim damages that that would destroy anyone. What what are your thoughts about that?
1: Well in from my perspective, uh it, it's gonna be one of the saddest days and the saddest events because at that point um I, I I will I'm already seeing justice slipping and I'm already seeing some very bad decisions being made. And if that were to happen, I, I would I would really be quite fearful and concerned about justice in this country and how it has become politicized because there's no evidence to substantiate these charges.
0: Yeah, and I I'll just chime in before Danny, before you speak. I mean I you know, as a lawyer that that um has always been concerned about rights. You know, our, our right to, to protest, our right for freedom of expression. I mean, I would, I would expect the, you know, the pros, police and prosecutors to exercise extreme restraint before even laying a single charge. That, that I mean, really, if there's any air time you should overlook, and, and not proceed with charges. It's, you know, in a context like this, you'd, whether you agree or, or disagree, but I mean, if we can't peacefully come together and protest things that we don't like without, it, which, you know, if we're getting charged and we're getting our bank accounts, seized and all of that, we can't. Well, what's the alternative? I mean, we're going to have periods in our collective experience where, you know, a large group of us will, will strongly disagree on things and if they can't peacefully voice protest and peacefully try to get involved to enact change what are like it, it's not a it's not where we want to go like so what grieves me is 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 are we going to be afraid next time to protest is it not going to be peaceful next time like what is the government thinking we had I've had people describe it to me as the most peaceful large gathering they've ever seen. And, and for the fact that it went on so long and, and was peaceful and, and you want to charge people like it, it, I I'm really concerned about where we're going and sorry, Dan, Danny, for jumping in.
2: No, 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 no apology necessary. Um, I, the, the criminal charges that they're facing, you know, The people who've already spent substantial time in custody would probably never be sentenced to that, even if they were convicted Mm -hmm. in in a normal circumstance, but we're not operating in a normal circumstance. Um, My only hope is that the judge will actually listen to the evidence and not just take certain things as judicial notice, like some of the media reporting or maybe some of the information about the effectiveness of the of the public health mandates. Um, I think if the judge is willing to actually listen to the evidence they stand they have a, a good chance but it does very much concern me about what will happen in Canada if they are if they're dealt with harshly and if the judge doesn't listen to the evidence and if the judge takes judicial notice and try and they try and put them away for 10 years, that's going to be bad. That'll be very bad. And uh, I really, I really, really hope and pray that that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> I myself am named as a defendant in that lawsuit. So that's something. Oh, okay, so you know I'm what thinking. I'm talking about? What, like, what's the figure they're asking for? It's, it's I think amazing. it's up over 400 million now.
0: Well, you've got that.
2: Yeah, so no worries. I thought it was a lot of money. Yeah, especially, especially as an unemployed, <laughs> as, a, as a young retired police officer. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I, I mean, I, and we'll end it soon because we're, we're really going long. but I've, I've so enjoyed this. But, I, you know, I think one recommendation I, I would make going forward is, is that you just can't have civil suits, I, you know, except under very special circumstances. In relation to protests, like I mean, it's just, and you know, the idea of of having bank accounts seized and all of that, like it's just because we have to be able to blow off steam, like right or wrong, you, you know, you got to be able to, you got to be able to voice disconsent. That that's what liberal democracy is all about: the right to disagree and protest and and the whole thing. Um. So, gentlemen, this has been in two hours. I, I'm just looking, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> so, um, and just what an honor, what an honor to, um, to spend an evening with the two of you and, and earlier with Rick. Um, I, again, I, it's just I've worked with police office, officers my whole career, and I don't think people appreciate what you guys do. <clears throat> and uh, so on behalf of the National Citizens Inquiry, I sincerely thank you for your service, and uh, for sharing with us tonight, it's it's uh, <clears throat> it's just so important that this type of information be shared.
2: Thank you, thank you for having me. And and on yeah. that happening, we'll we'll sign off for the night.
0: And uh, thank you everyone for joining with us. I'm supposed to um, indicate that we're going to have our next roundtable on September 8th. And I I had shared uh, at the beginning of this that sheila lewis uh, one of our witnesses had died in the last week Um, when she testified in ottawa i believe she told us you know that she only had months left to live and and she was correct about that we're going to have her son darcy lewis on that round table to share part of his experience and some other things about sheila so please join us with that and and so on on that happy note god bless
3: Thank you so much for listening to this broadcast of the National Citizens Inquiry. It's so important to get the testimonies of Canadians out there. So please share on all your channels and invite your friends and family to listen in. As always, you can head over to nationalcitizensinquiry.ca to sign our petition and find out more on how you can take personal responsibility. From the National Citizens Inquiry, thank you. The world is watching.